We've spent the past four weeks really trying to unfold what the gospel says and to see how it changes us individually. This morning, we're going to shift our attention to how the gospel changes us all together as a church. And here's the question before us. If the gospel, which we have heard, is true, uh, if it's true that in his grace, God saw our brokenness and, and how lost we were and how miserable that we are apart from him forever. And if God knows that we cannot make our way back to him, we don't have what it takes to solve the problem of sin, but God's compassion for us was moved uh, and stirred up in him uh, something that, that invited him to leave heaven and to come to be with us. If that's true, if out of pure love, God would rescue us at his own expense, if that's the case, then what, what are the implications not only for us individually, and that's what we looked at last week, but what does that mean for us as a church altogether? And that's our question this morning. Uh, if it is true, what position does the gospel put us in as a church And if you're not in this church but just visiting, wherever you are in the community of faith, what does the gospel do for your position relative to the world of people who don't know or believe it? Uh, How does it put us in a position of being responsible when we are given to know the gospel? This morning, I want to show you how the gospel makes us, me and you all together, responsible. How the church has to let the gospel change its attitude altogether and its actions toward the world in which we find ourselves. Because every community uh, of people gathered together who hear the gospel will be set apart by it and then also made responsible for it in relationship to the world that doesn't know it yet. The story that has been guiding us in this month behind will be our guide again today. And it's the story of four leprous men who are, are the first to discover that God has done something to save everyone in the city of Samaria. This is a quick um, a synopsis of that story. If, if you're new here this morning, uh, the city of Samaria was under siege by an enemy army from the north. The soldiers set up their tents around the city and they began a process of starving everyone in the city. It worked. Because of the presence of that enemy, the folks in the city were driven uh, to cannibalism. It was horrible. Uh, we, we looked at that story as a pattern for the gospel and said, you know, the Bible says that in sin, our condition collectively is just as it was for those folks in Samaria. In fact, the reason that the enemy had the power that they did there was because the people had wandered from God. It's quite plain that apart from God, that's what happens. And now there are four leprous men introduced in that story who, on a whim, decide to defect to the enemy camp before they starve to death, realizing that maybe they'll receive us, but if not, they'll just kill us and we're going to die anyway. And as they go in the night to to the enemy encampment, God makes the sound of an army ring into the ears of those soldiers, and so they flee, leaving all of the provisions behind. And last week, we looked at how those lepers were the first to receive this good news. And, and you may recall, if you were here, that their immediate response was to start hiding and hoarding all of the food and the treasures for themselves until a transformation began in them. And last week, that was our, our goal, was to see how does the gospel transform an individual? And I really wanted you to think about you. How do you change when you see what God has done? And how does your vision change? And how does your basic inclination change? How does your a mission change when you see what God has done. What I want to do this morning is return to that moment 
for those lepers, but this time thinking about rather just you, but, but rather thinking about Renaissance Church altogether. Because whether we see it or not, the moment we come in here, we become a part of this collection of folks as Renaissance Church. And so what I want us to do is to see how does the gospel change our position relative to the world and what can we learn from these leprous men? I want you to look again with me at their response to their discovery. This is 2 Kings 7, verse 9, after they realize that it's not right to go on hoarding. This is what happens. Look at this. It says, Then they said to one another, What we are doing is wrong. This is a day of good news. It is their consideration of the other people who are starving in Samaria, who don't know what has happened yet, which makes them look at themselves and say these six words, which as your pastor, I want to always challenge and encourage you with me to put to ourselves. And it is this sentiment, what we are doing is wrong. And what I want is to challenge us as a church always to be willing to say these words to ourselves, not by our own wisdom or because we realize we're not as popular as we want to be, but rather the gospel demands that every community which receives it in order to be faithful must always be willing to say these six words to itself in light of the gospel. That is, if the gospel is true, how do we need to look at ourselves and be critical, not of other people out there in the world? How easy is it to criticize other people in the world? Amen? Right. How easy is it, and this we should not be proud of ever, how easy is it to look at other churches and say what they are doing is wrong? The enemy wants us to do that. God save us from that, but rather to look at ourselves and say, hold on a minute. Because of the gospel, what we are doing is wrong. Because what the gospel does is it puts us as a community that receives it in a position relative to the world which demands something new of us. And I want to this morning just show you three changes for us as a community altogether relative to the world that follows from our reception of the gospel. And all three are going to be illuminated for us by one of Jesus' very, very close followers, a man named John. In his gospel and in his letters... He reflected on how receiving the gospel changes us to teach us about our position relative to the world. And I'm going to show you three facts. And the first is this, that receiving the gospel puts the community of faith, us, in the position of knowing the truth, which the world does not yet know about itself. That's where we are when we receive the gospel. We are given eyes to know the truth about the world and we are a part of the world better than the world knows itself. I want you to look at the words of Jesus which John recorded in his gospel in chapter 8 of John's gospel in verse 31. Here's what Jesus claims. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus taught that if you know him, And if you know the word of God, which he makes known, in the beginning of John's gospel, he's actually called the word of God, who was God and was with God. If you know him and you know the word which he makes known, then you know the truth. And by inference, we can can deduce this, that the one who does not know Jesus and who does not know the gospel which he reveals is a person who does not know the truth. Listen to the truth. Because as soon as I say that, you might think, that sounds kind of arrogant. 
It would be if not for the content of the truth which Jesus speaks about. The truth is that God overcame sin and death for the whole world when compassion moved him to come in person in Jesus so that he could give his life as a ransom. And Jesus said that, I've come not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. When Jesus did that, he defeated the enemy. It says in 1 John that Jesus came to defeat the works of the devil. And whatever you think about the devil, you know that the world is filled with evil and dark power. And God in Christ defeated those powers truly, just as the enemies were chased away by God definitively. In the story of the, the, the siege in Samaria, Jesus did that. And we are invited to know that when we receive the gospel. And what that means is that the wall between the world and God, which had been impossibly erected by sin, has been broken down. The chasm has been bridged. The power of darkness has been vanquished. Everything needed to set things right on God's side has been done by God because of his love, and therefore there is no need at all to go on living oppressed. And anyone who receives the gospel of God's grace in Jesus is completely free, and this is the truth which the person who receives the gospel is given to believe. And we know it when we believe the gospel. And where it's not believed, the truth has not yet been grasped. If you would just picture the lepers outside of the city in the dark, standing before those tents, there they get to know the truth. Imagine now they go back to the city after they've eaten everything they need and had all the drink that they need and have been restored to health. Imagine them now among the citizens of the city who are still starving. Only difference between them deep, deep down is these four know the truth, which everyone else doesn't know yet. Right? Everyone in the city thinks, we can only go on starving from now on because the enemy's out there. Not true. They believe God doesn't care about us. Not true. God saw their plight and intervened for them. Those folks within the city think from now on it's hopelessness because God caused all these problems. They actually believe that. Not true at all. The lepers are in a different position relative from everyone else in that they know the truth which the citizens in the city don't know yet. Do you see it? If we receive the gospel as, as a church altogether, that's what distinguishes us from those who don't know it. It's just that by God's grace and mercy and kindness, he let this group of lepers here. And should we always think of ourselves in that way? starving people who by God's grace have been delivered. He's let us know the truth which the world doesn't know. Listen, this is what it looks like. When I left Princeton, I was in school there for years, and in 2002, I left seminary to go do outreach ministry with kids in Red Bank who would not go to church. There were a group of Christians there who said, those kids who hang out in the park, they should know Jesus, but they're not gonna be welcomed even if they would go to a church. We should go to them. And day after day, in the summer, of 2000, excuse me, the summer of 2003, I used to hang out in that park with my skateboard and just skate with those kids. Did I wear tweed then? Absolutely not. But I also did not wear leather and chains. I didn't smoke and swear loudly like those other kids. So I stood out, but I was a, I was a good enough skater to be sort of welcomed at a distance, but they thought I was weird. And then one afternoon, I noticed suddenly that the kids who were all together, I'd never really talked to them. They were talking about me. And then one of the biggest of their crew walked right up to me and looking down as I sat on the curb there, he said to me, 
we're trying to figure you out. Are you a narc or something? And without even thinking, my response was, no, I'm a Christian. I had not planned this. I said, I'm a part of a group of Christians who believe that if Jesus were walking around like I am, he would be hanging out with you guys instead of in that tall steeple church up on the hill waiting for you to come to be with him. The kid looked at his friends like startled, but also there was some gravity in his face. And he said to me, yeah, that's because we're more fouled up than everyone else and we need him more than they do. But he didn't use the word fouled up. (laughs) And I got to tell him, you know, Jesus said almost that same thing, that he came for those who knew that they needed him. And the truth is, we all need him just the same. And and really, the only difference then between me and him was that I knew the truth which he didn't know yet. He believed that he had to get his act together and all his friends would have to straighten out in just the right ways before they would be welcomed by God. But I know that that's not true. I know that Jesus came to be with me and I know that even though I might look as though I have it all together, just like everyone else, I'm in the same boat and I'm in the boat for which Jesus came. And that's the truth. And there with those young people, that truth, which I knew and the people that were with me in ministry there, the truth that we knew, it completely changed our attitude and our way of being with those young people because God had given us the truth about them which they didn't know yet. And this is the fact It's the first real distinguishing fact between us and the world if we receive the gospel as a church. It just means that God has given us to know the truth better than the world knows the truth about itself. Now, that might sound like an arrogant claim. And the fact which history reveals and makes very plain is that throughout its its life together, the church, capital C, has often taken its knowledge of the truth and turned it into a pretense for looking down on the world around and separating from the world. That has happened historically. It's a fact. But you must listen to me now. It is only a false gospel that could lead the person who knows it to look down on others. No one who knows the good news of Jesus could ever do that. The truth, which the true good news uncovers for us as a church, makes any sense of superiority over others absolutely absurd and utterly impossible. Anytime the church behaves as if the truth that it has places it above the world, in that moment it proves that it does not have a hold on the true gospel at all. Instead, it's in the grips of an enemy. The The truth that the community knows judges every inclination towards separation based on feelings of superiority, and it reveals this second fact for us, that is that we are in solidarity with the world in virtue of the gospel which we are given to believe. Okay, there are two central theological claims here that are very foundational for the gospel that are clear, clearly put in, in the New Testament especially, uh, which are also, in John's own words, illuminating for us this morning. And these two show us the solidarity which we really have that puts us all in the same boat. And and the first is that every one of us is equally lost in sin. Whether we wear tweed or leather, whether we say fouled up or the other word, which I'm not supposed to say in here. And here's the first one. Look at it in 1 John 1.8. John wrote this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
This is important. John did not write these words to people who did not know the gospel yet. He wrote them to the church which had received the good news. He wrote it to remind them about how they were just like everyone else in that still they lived in the environment in which in some measure the oppressive powers of sin will always tempt and invite us all into a departure from God onto our own paths. We're no different in that we all have sin. The gospel does not tell us that we are better than the people who do not believe it. It tells us we are just as needy, just as fouled up as everyone else is. And then John adds this just a few lines down. Jesus, he says this in 1 John 2 too, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Both of those theological truths must be held on to if we're going to be people who receive the gospel. That just like everyone else, we're, we're messed up because of sin. It's our problem just as everyone's. And that we don't need to despair because Jesus is the toning sacrifice for our sins. In his mercy, God has said it right. Whatever guilt or grief you've come in here uh, bearing this morning, you are free to give it over to Jesus because he took it away when he died on the cross and the, and the record that stood against you was nailed up there, but you must immediately also know that it was just the same for every other person, that he was the atoning sacrifice for literally every person who you will ever see on planet earth, and that means solidarity in two ways. In our equally, all of us, needing the mercy of God and in our equally being the ones who are freely able to receive what he did for everyone together. The gospel tells us we are in solidarity with the world in both of those ways. And we need to know this. We need to know that we're in the same boat so that we never do what we will always be tempted to do, which is to keep our distance from people who are not like us. To separate off from folks who don't believe like us, to say we need to keep our distance from those folks who don't have it right, to stay in our, um, we can't really say our tall steeple church, to stay in our sweet little opera house, (laughs) and then to leave those kids, whoever they are, and whatever metaphorically your world has, those kids to languish in the park apart from God. If we wonder uh, what, uh, what a model for this would look like, we don't need to look any further than Jesus, who is our Lord. Jesus came to save those who were lost, which meant going to be right where they were. He did not stay in the temple and wait for potential disciples to come to him. He went to the waterside where they were fishing. He went to the tax booth where they were, and he didn't wait for them to make their application and prove that they were good enough to be his disciples. He came to them and said, you are the one that I want. He even said that to the tax collector, Matthew. And what that does is it blows apart any inclination in a religious community to keep their distance from people who aren't good enough yet. Same thing happened when he sat down for meals. He went there with the people who were disreputable, the ones that religious folks were not supposed to sit down with because of their immorality. He went right there with those bad influences and he sat down. And if this is going to be our model for solidarity, and I'm telling you this, I'm convinced the gospel demands it of us, then it means that those of us who are righteous, and we should work for that, we should work for being righteous people. We must not be ashamed to sit down with those who are legitimately unrighteous and make them our friends. Will they change us? And you might ask that. Well, you should pray for God's glory and grace to dwell in you so that they don't uh, lead you the wrong way, but rather God uses you to bring them to him. And God's powerful enough to do that. Those of us who are wise here, we must not 
hesitate to be uh, uh, appearing as unwise among the world of fools so that God can use us to draw those fools who, who, like us, need his mercy to him so that we can become those who are given God's grace and wisdom. Those of us who are genuinely holy, we must never be too good to go all the way down into the depths, wherever that is, if God calls us to go there in order to practice our solidarity so he can use us to bring others up. That is the second distinguishing factor that the gospel declares of us. It is that the truth that we know makes it clear that we are in solidarity to the world and there is an end to which these two truths are meant to direct us. And that's the third determining factor uh, for us relative to the world based on receiving the gospel. It is that the solidarity makes it plain that we are under a real obligation to the citizens of the city. And here I'm thinking about the lepers again. The moment they see that the enemy is gone, they would have to be monsters to withhold that information from the folks back there who are starving and don't need to anymore. And the same is true for us as a church. There is literally no way for us to remain aloof from the world in its need if we have received the gospel truth that God is for everybody that God loves everybody, that God has defeated the enemy for everybody, and the only difference between us and them is that by his grace, he's decided to let us stumble upon that fact like four lepers who were so desperate they decided it's either death or maybe maybe they'll receive us. That's, that's our position. Am I inferring or am I uh, implying that you are a bunch of leprous people and you are inferring that correctly if you hear that in what I'm saying? We should look at ourselves all together as lepers, as people who have no hope apart from God's gracious deliverance. To receive, to receive Jesus always means to receive the task which comes with his gifts. And listen now, as someone who went from uh, graduate school in Princeton to the park day after day with a bunch of drug addicts who are skating together. I can tell you there's nothing as glorious as going into the world knowing the truth that God has given us. And the fact is, when you embody that and go with that obligation that comes with the gospel, you would never guess how powerful God is to operate through those moments. You just never guess it. My nickname amongst those skaters over the next few years became Christian the Christian. And I loved it. We studied the Bible together in the park with those kids. Uh, we we, we uh, shared meals with them. I got to unfold the stories in the gospel. I saw many of those young people come to faith uh, in astounding ways. I still, in these days, even now, I still am finding surprises that God worked profoundly through the lives of those kids I met in 2003 and 2004. There was a photographer who came on the opening night of our Christmas concerts who canceled her other events when uh, Dave Macaron's wife happened upon her on Instagram and just said, any chance you're available. She said, you know, over the last few months, I've reconnected with Christian the Christian and I've been listening to his sermons at Renaissance Church. He was the guy who I met in the early 2000s when he came to Red Bank with his friends to share the gospel. And she was here on Friday night. I hadn't seen her for all that time. It was amazing. Being under obligation to the world, it's not the task that we give to ourselves, but it's the task which our Lord, who died for us in the world, gives to us. When Jesus rose again and was with the disciples at the very end of the Gospel of John, he 
spoke to them after breathing upon them and giving them the Holy Spirit with this word of guidance for them, and it declares how they're obliged. It's in John 20, 21. He said this to the disciples. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And that's Jesus' way of saying, in the same way that the Father sent me, that's just how I will be sending you. An obligation is a good word for it. The Father sent the Son to take responsibility for other people's problems, which he could have very easily absolved himself of. Jesus could have easily said, listen, that is not my problem. I've never sinned, but he didn't. Because the Father sent him to take on and fix troubles that he didn't create to affect a solution for a problem that was someone else's fault, we have in that moment uh, a picture of exactly how we as his community are obliged in relationship to the world because of how he has sent us. It means that we can never go down the road of life and walk by someone else's problems and tell us, well, that's not really my fault and that's not, not, nothing to do with that. I'm thinking here of the, the, God, or the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember that one where Jesus intentionally chose two religious figures to depict as people who walked by on the other side because he wanted to say to the community, you go into the world with this gospel, with the truth that I've rescued you at my own expense, obliged to be people who are ready to say, okay, how is that my problem? And here, listen now, these three, let's look at them all together. The fact that the gospel gives us the truth which declares our solidarity with the world and puts us under obligation to this world, those three together demand of us as a church, that at every season of our life, we are ready and willing to learn from the lepers and say to ourselves where we need to, this, this sentence, look at it again. What we are doing is wrong. Th- that's our responsibility. And I'm a part of that with you. I'm, I'm a part of the group that needs to be willing always and in every season where God is giving us the gospel to receive, to look at ourselves and be willing to say those six words of ourselves, what we are doing is wrong. Not, oh, what the world is doing out there is wrong. That is not what we're first of all supposed to pay attention to, nor are we supposed to give in to the temptation to look at other churches around us and say, what they're doing is wrong. What we need instead is to look at ourselves and be willing to be critical of us. Now, if we're we're going to do that, I have four specific ways I can imagine us needing to put the question to ourselves. And I'm on the hook with you in this one, okay? And I want us to do this so that we can be faithful as receivers of the gospel. The first way that I think a church can always judge whether it's turned to inward or whether it's willing to live out, really, its obligation to the world is in its budget. And so we have to always be willing to look at how Renaissance Church is spending its money and be willing to say, hold on a second, what we're doing here is wrong. The church which uses all the money that it has just for itself, the church which grows and has more money than it used to and then says, oh, what can we do for us with all of this excess is a church which needs to pause and be willing to say of its budget, what we're doing is wrong. And we need you, I need all of you in on this, those of you especially who've taken on responsibilities for looking at our budget. The elders need to be serious about this. I'll tell you, we decided a few years back to say we're gonna start giving a percentage of what is given here away. And that's a great start. It was 2%, 2%, it was 4%, it's 6%. It's going to be 8 and then 10. But what I want to say to us together is that when we get to 10%, we must not become complacent, especially if God blesses us so that we have even more than we do, then we should be willing to say, all right, how can we use this money in a way that reflects the gospel? 
That's, that's the first area. Here's a second question, which I think we should be able to ask of ourselves. Not just in how we use our money, but how are we using our energy? I mean that in terms of the talents that we've got, the skills that we've got, the time, and other resources that God has blessed this community with. It is insane how much talent God has given this community. If you don't believe me and you haven't come to the Christmas concerts yet, come tonight. You will not even believe it. And not just in music, but in so many ways we are blessed. And so the question we should ask is, are we, are we going to become okay with business as usual as a church? Or are we going to continually break new ground for the mission that God is giving us as a church? We need eyes, all of us, on how we're spending our energy. And we must ask, are we moving forward as a vanguard for the kingdom, taking serious risks with all of the energy that God has given us so that if we ever become complacent, someone needs to say, hold on a minute, what we're doing is wrong. Here's a third area. And it pertains to our leadership as a church. And I've thought about this. I think we can do better here. In our leadership in every area, I mean with our students and with our children, I mean with our music ministry up front here, and Dave and I have talked about this together, with the way that we uh, carry ourselves as elders and as pastoral leadership, the question that we have to ask is in the way that we're building our body of servants who lead together, have we adequately reflected the diversity of the people that God has brought together here to be his people in Renaissance Church? Or have we uh, unintentionally, indirectly reinforced the barriers of race in our patterns or our culture or cultural differences or our class differences or age differentiation or gender? We need to ask those questions of our leadership, not, listen now, not because we have to satisfy people in culture, but because this is a gospel question. The gospel says Jesus came to take away the old barriers that the world is always trying to put up. That when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the Holy Spirit was poured out on everybody, on young and old, men and women, slaves and free, people of every, every different Uh, division, which the world always wants to say, hey, let's divide up again. And I think we need to work on this in our leadership to say, are we also like the world in dividing up and only having one kind of person? Can someone say amen to that? This is a challenge for us. And I want us to meet it because the gospel demands it. And here's the fourth question that we should ask of ourselves. And this one will seem to be the smallest but I don't think it is. I think it's all the way deep down beneath the ways that we need to be better. It's this one. Are there patterns in Renaissance Church's life together which reinforce cliques that include some while excluding others? It's subtle here. But but here's a first, for instance, how people who are upfront dress. If you were paying attention to me over the last three years, what, what you would notice about me is that I've started to dress more and more like Dave Macaron. <laughs> and and it's, it's funny, and I love, I, love, I love picking on Dave more than anything. It takes so much restraint not to do that. But it's true, I've started to dress more like him. And I'm not joking here. When that happens, when people start all looking like each other, it communicates something to others that if you don't look like we look, then you're not in as we are in. And I don't know, maybe I'm willing to give up, you know, this upgrade that I've had. But what I want us to see is that that that's one of the many ways we can find ourselves drawn into unconscious patterns of us and them. Like how we talk to each other after the services are done. 
Do we always just talk to people who look like us, who are, who are from the same kind of place that we're from? Do we always only go to the people that we usually talk to? Uh, are there folks who come week after week by themselves, and they show up by themselves, and they leave by themselves, and no one says anything to them? And not because we have ill will, but because it's just one of the many subtleties that the enemy uses to keep us from being effective as a gospel church. Uh, Who are we inviting over? Who are we opening up to? All of these are questions that also the gospel puts to us so that we're willing to look at our behavior in every way and to to ask that question. Uh, Is this one of those moments where we need to say, what we are doing is wrong? We need to do this. And listen, here's the last thing I want to observe this morning. And it's absolutely critical for the church, the community that will be formed by the gospel. It is the pronoun which the lepers chose to use in the moment they realized that something was wrong. Instead of saying you, they said we. It could have been that one of the self-righteous four could have said, hey, 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 what you are doing is wrong. And then, if that other person didn't straighten it out, why that leper could go and form his own church down the block. And God will, I'm telling you right now, God will, will desperately want us always to say we and not you when we look at one another because what the kingdom needs is communities that refuse to divide up by blaming the problems within their church and we'll have our own problems on them rather than saying it's us together. And so that should be our commitment to each other for the sake of the gospel. It is that when we see a problem, even if we could say, it's really that person over there, that we come to them and say, hold on a minute. What we are doing together is wrong because God has called us into this community, not me and you and that person over there and them, but us all together. If we look around, this is who God is building together. Thank God. God for who he's building together. And I say that with all sincerity. I love being with you in this mission together. But that last word, we, is the one that we must always receive so that the gospel forms us for the work that God has for Renaissance Church to do in light of what he's done for everyone in Jesus. Are we ready to be formed by the gospel? Yes or no? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Let's pray together now, my dear brothers and sisters. God, we thank you so much for the gospel which puts us all before the truth, and may we never forget the truth that you have given us to know, which those who feel that you've forsaken them, who feel that you're far, who feel that you're not good, who feel that they must do something before they come to you, thank you for giving us the truth to know that none of those things are so, that everyone we ever encounter is beloved by you, and you yourself have done what is required to vanquish the enemy of sin and death for everyone. God, would you help us receive that truth so that we know our solidarity with everyone in the world. And then with your gracious and good son, Jesus, as our model, the one who was not too good to go and sit down with sinners and eat with them and welcome them with his love, would he be our model so that we are willing always to go out into the world just as you sent him into the world so that we can practice that solidarity and see that we're under obligation to the world because of the gospel which you've given us to know. And then would we be glad and joyful bearers of that good news in whatever way you're calling us to be so. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. In Renaissance Church said all together, amen.